Do we want to talk about VR? Yeah, I don't know. Do we know enough about it? <laughs> yeah. I don't see we haven't tried it really. Never stopped us before. <laughs> know, but now people can judge us. <laughs> yeah. So I posted you guys a link uh for something called Space. I think it's at getspace.io. Yes. And it is virtual desktops for a VR headset, I think is that sort of a, yeah. a good description. Yeah, that sounds about right. I watched the um demo video and it I don't know. I, I'm I'm a little bit cynical about this whole uh VR thing. I th- I I can't imagine a situation where this would actually be cool. But see, I think whoever's designed this thing is kind of trying to shoehorn this kind of product into the VR market where it's not ready for it. I mean, the VR market for me is about video games mostly at the moment. Um, it could be used in other stuff like virtual tours or something like that. But for me, it's video games, it's experiences. I don't see currently VR being good for um, productivity in work or anything like that. I mean, it's going to be a strain looking at fake monitors that are lower resolution than real monitors, right? I guess, do you think in four to five years time that gaming will still be the only sort of mainstream use of VR? Because it seems a huge amount of hype about VR at the moment. Is that hype overblown? I, I, I guess... Historically, it could be overblown. You know, we saw this with 3D TVs. I mean, they were the big thing. Um, but there was never any future in them. And I guess the next big thing at the moment, I suppose, in TVs, they just moved on instantly then into something that's more viable, which is Ultra HD or 4K or OLED TVs, you know, which, you know, probably have more life to them. Um, well, definitely well going forward. But uh, I think... Th- th- I think the hype is justified for VR. It needs to be there for the product to get off the ground. I mean, the the only people who are going to buy it are the early adopters. The people who have a bit of money. Some of them might be buying, you know, the HTC and the Oculus. Um, to, to get them to go out and buy it, there needs to be hype because there needs to be hype as well for people to want to make games for it because they are going to know that the number of people buying the games are ultimately going to be much, much smaller than people who are going to be buying, I guess, a console game or a PC game because anyone has a PC. If they have the PC, they can buy the game, assuming their graphics cards and handle it. Um, They don't need an extra peripheral. They don't need an extra peripheral that is hard to get a hold of and costs in around six to eight hundred euro dollars. Um, So I think, yeah, the hype needs to be there at the moment um, to get people interested in it. whether it will remain um i think it will i think for once it actually might stay around you know but are you talking about just for video games though or like are you talking about something wider i mean there's gonna there's gonna be i think there's gonna be companies that are gonna try and again use it for stuff outside video games maybe tours or virtual meetings or oh god it, yeah virtual meetings has already been talked about which sounds really really awful <laughs> i mean if i want like uh, we're talking to each other on skype here i can see dave you know that's perfect for me i don't want to see dave as an avatar in 3d with like uh, a my little pony unicorn or something like that you know and directional <laughs> and, audio and directional audio it's like i can just you know look at you but it could be and I, I'm, there's no doubt, yeah, it will be used in f- stuff other than video games, but I don't think it really has a future there. 
I could be proved wrong, you know. One of these things in hindsight, looking back, I'm going to be like, oh God, I was such an idiot. Someone actually figured out a good use for it besides video games, but I can't see it. Um, and I don't want to see it outside of video games, you know. Yeah, so I just suppose from my point of view, I'm just from the computer that I'm on at the moment is a maxed out 13 inch MacBook Air. Okay, so obviously that in itself, first of all, is not powerful enough to actually run any of these VR stuff. But the screen resolution is only like 900p. Okay, yeah. So it's 1440 by 900p. And the Internet, which could be lying to me, leads me to believe that the Vive anyway is 1080p in each eye. 1080p in each eye. Yeah. Yeah. So immediately... um. That is higher resolution than my monitor. Now, obviously, all of that has to be taken into account for the peripherals around it. It's not going to take up every line from top to bottom. There's going to be places that your eye can't really focus on, I'm sure. But it to be a, it doesn't sound like it's too far off actually being usable. Like, this is something I want. Like, I'm in a room now at a tiny desk and I have my MacBook and, you know, I have a microphone popped up in a box. Like, but... If I could have, <laughs> if I could have, you know, another few screens that I could just look around or glance at while I was doing some some heavier computing tasks, that would be amazing. But at the same time, you know, I probably wouldn't buy it just for that. There'd have to be something else. But if this actually worked, hell yeah, I'd use it the whole time. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I'm just not seeing it. I guess I. I... I find it strange that for something with so much hype around it, I, I just, when I saw the space, the demo, the space uh, product, first of all, I thought, why that's, you know, not great resolution. But the second one is, is I'm not sure that this would be useful for me, even if the resolution was really high. Like uh, this concept of kind of looking around different directions and sort of seeing different screens, would that not be kind of quite disorientating after a while? Well, I imagine that you could build in a lot of head gestures. Like, I mean, if you look down and then up, it moves you to the screen down below and you can still look in your normal your normal place. Or you can configure it so that they're just a big wide screen. Like we've seen the kind of the extra wide curved TV screen kind of setups. So you could have something like that. So that, you know, if you need to look at them all at once or be moving around to look at them, if they're just things that you have in the peripheral, like, oh, that's my email up there and you can just glance up at it. But when you want to use it, it becomes active. You know, these kind of things could be very, could be very useful if we actually, if we think about the UI, like we have to understand that it's a an entirely different UI for this, even if we stick to the paradigm of desktops, um, how we use it, there's an entire new um you know, a uh, design language that needs to be used for, for things like this. And, you know, there's going to be UI gesture recognition for head nods in iOS at some point, you know? I think one of the things as well is I don't just live on my desktop screen inside and work. You know, there's a lot of, even with iPhone development, picking up your iPhone and looking at your iPhone and t- tapping around with it, where that would involve, you know, taking the headset on and off, on and off, on and off kind of thing. So I know in the HTC Vive, they've got a really cool thing where they've got a camera on the front of the screen. So at any point you can overlay the room around you so you can see where you are in your room and then pop back into the game without having to take off the headset. And maybe something like that would be more viable in the future where you can actually look at your phone and see your hands and stuff like that while having these virtual screens in front of you. But even then, like just pen and paper stuff on the 
using your hands outside of the uh the virtual world it will be tough I, I can't even touch type as well so that's going to be <laughs> that's going to be a pain i'm gonna to have to learn how to touch type i guess a bit better um for me i i don't see it i i can see definitely where dave is coming from um and as I said, I could be a fool about this in year. Thomas, when mobile phones first came out, did you were you like, nah, not interested in, in them? People like like look like fools using them, or were you all about uh, them? I, I, are you talking about the old? Have you have you ever like have you been an early adopter of technology before? I guess uh, maybe not. I guess I'm trying to think what has come around in the last ten years that I could have jumped on. You like your gadgets, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you spend, I guess, a good bit of money on them, but, but uh, you wouldn't go out and get probably the first iPod, the first Apple Watch, anything like this, the first VR headset, I guess, you know, whereas I'm going to get the first PlayStation VR headset straight away. No qualms about it. I guess I, I fully, I you know, I fully expect that maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but I would have thought, given the amount of hype uh, around VR, that I'm not seeing what looked to me like things that could be compelling in the future. Yeah. Apart yeah. from gaming. And the gaming is fine and, and that's cool. But if it's just gaming, then I'm not sure it's the sort of paradigm shift that a lot of people are saying VR. Like just gaming on its own. I think it you know, it doesn't make it invalid, but I, I don't think it's a revolution of computing. I, I think where we will be used more is probably simulation training uh simulation for like i guess well we're going to have robots driving a lot of our cars in the future so maybe not that but even stuff like surgery i guess um i know there's some guys up in dublin doing augmented reality surgery and stuff like this where they have i guess yeah this augmented reality body parts or surgery that you're doing surgery on where this could kind of go into there and i think it could be useful for training and stuff like this in the future but um and maybe maybe that's where a good future would be for training for yeah people make it cheaper not having to use um real life equipment expensive equipment mm. and have you guys seen the live coding example in vr that was floating around it was on hacker news probably years ago at this point um nope someone doing javascript in 3d javascript i think and but they were in the environment so the actual text editor was floating and as they made changes the things popped into existence in the same plane as as them and they could kind of look around and you know when they made the update to the code it, it went back and again your man had to touch type and the resolution wasn't great but you know like when i saw that i was just i was blown away by it that's pretty cool does 3D JavaScript mean you have to left pad your strings in two, three dimensions? Um, yeah, left pad your pixel buffers, I think. <laughs> so that's BR, huh? I guess so. I guess, you know, it's one of the things. Four years from now, we'll have a better idea. I'd be eating my words. You might be, you might be. But um, I guess it's... It, it, it's up for the early adopters, you know, to really buy into it, for the, for it to have any legs going forward. People like you, Baz. People like me. Keeping the industry af afloat. Yeah, I think PSVR is the first mainstream, though. I think that's that's kind of gone past early adopters once it's on a console. Baz isn't as hipster as he likes to think he is. <laughs> In the no. console land, probably. But probably, the PC yeah. master race have, have different standards. They definitely do. Yeah, I'm scum to them. Speaking of PC Master Race, there's a link I wanted to share with you guys. Um, 
it was on Hacker News today. Um, somebody, it's one of these stupid uh, Hackintosh articles. Um, and I just love Hackintosh articles, right? Because they all have the, like, we'll put this one in the show notes, but it, it's the exact same as any other Hackintosh article ever. So it starts with a rant about Apple. And, you know, especially now some of their pro hardware is um, a bit outdated. And then like, look what an amazing configuration I can build with, um, you know, off the shelf PC parts. And then like, oh, it's awesome. Everything works fine. And they talk about Tony Mac X86. And at the very end, they're always like, oh, yeah, iMessage doesn't work. Uh, AirDrop is even worse than it is in a normal Mac. Uh, my audio doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but I have 16 gigs of RAM. <laughs> my computer can't play any sound, but oh, they're all the same. Yeah, continuity doesn't work. He has to do some hack to get his graphic card driver uh, recognized. And every point update, it tends to hose the... Everything, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway, sorry, that was just a brief. So, side. have we have we ever used or built a Hackintosh? Any of us? No. I I was tempted in the Dell Mini Nine days. You know that yeah, netbook. Same because we had about a hundred of them at work. Um, oh wow! And it was my job to set them all up, and I was just kind of. I there was loads of them in boxes. I just never got around to it, but I was. I was very tempted back then, but just the effort, you know. Yeah, and I'm normally pretty cheap about stuff. So, like, this in some ways would be something, the type of thing that I might do. But uh, oh, I, I just think, like, I'd be happier with the slower Mac. And I think I think some of the people coming at this is it's that old PC thing of kind of, like, measuring numbers. And that's how you, so, you know, this processor is X gigahertz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, eh, like maybe it's for me, because I'm not doing heavy video work. And so I don't, like, I certainly don't feel my current Mac is in any way slow. And I didn't feel my previous Mac was slow. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. <laughs> okay. Dave, tell us why you're going down the dark side and you've given up written nat- writing native apps. Uh, do you still beat your wife you know yeah um (laughs) that's one of those types of questions so um i came across something recently called native script which i actually surprisingly have not seen before and it's it says cross-platform native mobile apps so you get a native ui from single code base and it's basically javascript html ish kind of javascript and css and you can use angular and a few of the other standard javascript libraries that you might be unfortunate enough to to know about so basically it's right once run them anywhere as long as it's ios and android as far as i can tell so it's basically a kind of an xml html page that has um page grid layout labels list view just kind of an xml setup of the actual DUI, you code it in JavaScript, and then you can generate an Xcode project or an Android Studio project, and off you go, and it generates it, and 
you can make modifications in that if you need to for native stuff. It doesn't generate native code, but it generates the project that you can hook into if you need to. And basically it adapts based on the platform. So you can use the one page and it will put in the iOS controls or it will put in the Android controls based on how they generally appear. So I have one or two small apps coming up that I would like to have on Android as well or that the, the person who, who's um, who's getting them built would like to have them on Android. I don't really want to do Java. I don't really want to do JavaScript either, but at least there's a benefit to it in that it's not JavaScript and Objective-C or Swift. It's just JavaScript. So if this does work, a lot of um, cross-platform development looks like it's going to be getting easier for me from now on. I've tried other stuff. I've done PhoneGap. I've done, um, you know, every time one of these pops up, I take a look at it and kind of run for the hills after after a trivial app. This looks, I, I've done the trivial app and this looks like it might there might be more to it than than previously. And Dave, do you want to talk about where you felt the other solutions on the market, like PhoneGap or Cordova or whatever, where where you think they fell, they fall down and where this may not fall down as badly? So I think one of the main things is you still want your app to look native. Okay, so I've done the PhoneGap stuff and it's still just HTML and CSS. It's just a web page that's dropped into a folder you upload it somewhere and it magically becomes an app you know or you have a an app that you you have a program you run on your your mac and it hosts it and you can you know you can look at it on your phone or whatever but essentially it's just a website that happens to be running locally on your phone the ui is the exact same it's just a web ui and you can use things like there's uh framework 7 there's ionic and stuff like that which are mobile um UIs so they're and they they tend to do similar stuff with the they have um like framework 7 has a really good iOS skin and an Android skin and they're they're like really good but you still have to actually take into account the platform differences in a significant enough way to make it kind of to make it annoying for me so far this uh native script is um is handling that but again I'm I'm still at the I'm just at the point where I would have left the other platforms now and I and I haven't. Okay. So um I don't know. It's looking good. Stay tuned. How responsive is it? Seems pretty good. Now the mo- all I'm doing is some basic UI stuff at the moment, but it seems pretty pretty responsive. And there's a native script app already on the App Store that you can that you can download to have a play around with. It's okay. slightly off in feeling native. But I think that those are choices that was made by the developer showing stuff off that you can change stuff. And what I like as well is you can just style the components in CSS. You can just go, oh, margin this, padding that, and off you go. You don't have to mess around with Interface Builder or come up with a CG rect point, you know, or or any of that, that kind of stuff. It's just HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and you end up with something that something that will do. You were saying some of the other competitors aren't as good. What, what, what about Xamarin? Have you looked at Xamarin? It's on the list. And again, when they open source it, I was, I was like, yes, this is the, I'll do all my next stuff in Xamarin. But um, just getting up and running with, uh, with C Sharp, which I haven't used in a while, is um, right. something I just don't want to tackle at the moment. But yeah, Xamarin as well looks like it could be, could be the thing. I kind of don't want to get too invested in 
in anything at the moment, really. And for me, there's more of an investment in getting involved in Xamarin than there is in something like Native Script, where I already pretty much know HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so. so, Dave, if this is all that it promises to be, what what specific use cases would you consider it for, and what specific use cases would you not consider it for? So I suppose nearly all of my um, decisions, to be honest, are based on cost at the moment. So it's if someone wants an app on Android and iOS and they don't want to pay for two apps, then, you know, you, you kind of compromise and you're kind of like, well, OK, only pay me one and a half times and I'll do it in JavaScript. But if they start looking for anything fancy, though, like... Cust- like you know cool custom UI stuff custom animations do you just kind of tell them look that's not possible or do these tools allow that kind of stuff it seems to so far as I said I'm I'm just still at the, the fairly basic yeah. stage of, of messing around with it but it seems to it seems to allow you to hook in to do that kind of fancy stuff it would th- it would seem to me that like it's probably one of those things where it would force you to gather requirements in a much more kind of rigorous fashion because presumably like all of these things have limits and if you're 100% sure you're not going to be hitting those limits then that's great um but the danger is that sort of three quarters of the way through the client has an idea for a new feature that just like doesn't fit this model and then you're sort of does that cause a problem I would, but again, the thing is, if it's if it's a feature that requires it to be done, you can hook into it natively, but you'll have to do it in iOS and you'll have to do it in Android, and they'll they'd have to pay for that. And you can just tell them that, and if they pay, off they go, no bother. But <laughs> I, I find that the the price list is a a great thing for making people rethink what's what's possible in their apps. Do you think this? Um, whatever about for you personally? Do you think? Um, you know, okay, we have a clear duopoly for smartphones and tablets between iOS and Android. Um, and obviously native app development is expensive. Um, you know, is this the beginning of the end for sort of na- native app developers like ourselves outside of sort of niche applications where you're talking to hardware or you're doing something very custom? No, I think there's always going to be people who want to do who want to get performance out of it you know if if it's just a crud app yeah maybe you know if it, if you just you know it, it's basically an app interface to a database on a website or something you know just those simple apps uh it could definitely replace a lot of that but i think once you go into any feature that's like take any feature that apple announced in the new at at wwdc how long will it take for them to filter through to these kind of systems you see and people want to use them and they're going to get frustrated we've been bitten by this before so i mean but i'm just conveniently forgetting it and going going to this <laughs> we'd, we'd build stuff on a platform and then uh the iphone 4 came out with retina and yep they did not update the platform for quite a while to support retina and we'd invested a lot of time um building stuff and you know i know look that's uh probably a once in a once in a lifetime change of uh of something to get to get bit by but it's still um uh still something to keep in mind 
these things just lose momentum as well. You know, I mean, this might be great if I have to build a few apps and kind of throw them away or whatever, or do a prototype someone wants something fast. But I'd say, you know, if I was starting an app that had a long-term potential or long-term future, I don't think I'd use anything other than native for both of them. What is the cost of using this? Just your time. So the the platform is completely free? Yeah. That's its downfall right there then, right? As you're talking about with Paris <laughs> to be before. Fair Telerik do have so Telerik is the company that make it. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think they do an awful lot of um they do stuff on the No, they do stuff on the C C sharp side, so um like web stuff. Um web frameworks for C sharp, I think, or some sort of interface frameworks. And even they do have, I think, one or two paid upgrades. Um Controls, yeah. There. Yeah. But it is open source, like it's not like Parse where someone turns off a server like at once I have this downloaded and installed, that's it forever, unless I want to update it, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you're not <laughs> you're not in too much fear of something like that happening. And one, one last one. The the layout stuff is just all pure you're laying items out, you're like you're laying out a website. Yeah, like and stuff they have like this. um they have things like grid layouts and stuff mm-hmm. like that that you can use. So you just create essentially open a tag grid layout and you put in your labels and items and it just lays them out in a grid you know simple as that or you can you can get you can get fancier just worried you know just wondering about iphone resolution and stuff like that how it handles it and stuff yeah pretty cool moment it just seems to just seems to do it yeah so dave when are you hoping to maybe have built something with this i have a project starting next week and I'm still undecided what I'm going to use for it, but this might be, um, this might be it. it because I was going to do a kind of a mock-up of the app. And to be honest, if I do that, just using this, it seems like it would take me about the same length of time to actually create the app versus the mock-up. Cool. So we'll see how you get on. Yeah. Be like an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> It'll be never be mentioned again. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to talk about recruitment. Yeah. Yeah. So Thomas, you've got a bit of experience in recruitment yourself recently, right? I do. Tell us about your foray into the world of recruiters, being a recruiter. Yeah, I guess. So I I guess I've I've done two stints of recruiting. The first was for my own company where I hired a developer and a UX person. Um... And I guess I, you know, I have my own theories about what to look for in a good programmer, which is a huge topic. Um, and I'd be interested to hear your guys' views. But anyway, the second time was a friend of a friend. We were in a pub, and I have a bit of a standard rant about recruiters, which will be of no surprise to um, programmers like you, because I think most of us feel the same way about recruitment agencies that they're essentially pond life and, um, you know, it's a really creepy business. Um, and this guy anyway says, oh, well, actually, I I, I am a recruiter myself. And I'm like, oh, uh, sorry. Uh, um, but fortunately, he took it very well. And then I got a call from him. He, he's an accountant. He recruits other accountants. And I got a call from him a few weeks later saying, actually, a client of mine is looking for some IT people. Um, do you want to put your money where your mouth is if you think you can do any better? So I'm like, yeah, cool. Um, so I did. I hired three people. It was really interesting. Um, but um, sh- 
I think gave me further insight into, I guess, how I feel recruitment is broken, especially in the tech field. And what would your top three broken things be? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, for me, um, if I hear another tech company in Ireland going, oh, we can't find developers, I'm going to scream. Um, I I think there's a huge mismatch. I think companies are, are really bad at writing good job specs um, or more more specifically person specs for a job that they want to fill they tend to ask for far too much experience um the second is that um there are so many non-tech people in the chain that requirements get uh whittled down to need x years experience in y where y is quite specific so if you're recruiting um I don't know, a PHP developer and you've got, say you want somebody with sort of four years Laravel experience or however, however you pronounce it and somebody else has is a really good PHP developer and is sort of um, well experienced and knows some of the kind of the knots in the language but happen to prefer a different web framework, those people often don't get past the CV stage because they don't match this heuristic of like, you know, is this string in your CV? And if it's not, then throw it out. Um, I also think nerds are quite bad at describing what skills and experience they do have. Um, so yeah, it just feels the whole thing is just so, so wasteful and... I believe that companies really do think that they're having difficulty finding tech people. Um, but in my opinion, they shouldn't be. Um, I, th- I think one thing that gave me a bit more confidence was talking to you. Whereas I would have initially, I guess, gone into looking at a job spec thinking, oh, I needed all these things that all the bullet points I needed to figure them all out and have all of them. And I'd be a bit apprehensive about going for a job. And I know from other people people kind of say that you know uh, oh I don't have everything they're looking for or I'm not going to go look for it or they would undermine themselves and say look I don't have these things I'll take the job um, but I'll do it for less <laughs> you know that that kind of way they undermine their skills so I think knowing from you it was great to have as much as possible but if, if I didn't have anything don't worry about it because I guess you can prove that if you're a fast learner or you've, you're self-taught or anything like this or that you can pick up new skills from people you know um being 90% of the way to there is great and you can always fill in that last 10, 15, 20%, whatever it might be. Um, but I guess that was only from talking to you. And I said, I've heard from other people before, they'd take a job and they'd take it for less money if they could get it. And I think a lot of people are like that in the tech industry, especially leaving college. Um, I don't mind what I get as long as I get a job, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> there was, um, Mariam Finucan, um, I think about two months ago, there was um, a senior person with Lonely Planet who have quite big offices in Dublin. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, she went on this sort of pronouncement. She was like, well, I'm not a programmer myself, but let me tell you all, it is impossible to find good Ruby on Rails developers. We're having to import them from all over Europe because... Um, the education system is not fit for purpose um, in Ireland. And I'm kind of screaming at the radio going like, 
what are you talking about? Like, what? Uh, it just so frustrates me, this kind of, like, narrow kind of thing. Like, I don't know about you guys, but if if I if I had a company and sort of Ruby on Rails is our main stack, I would totally, like, anybody with, uh, you know, say, decent Python experience or... You know, I would totally consider for, especially you're talking about a team of people. And in some ways, it's almost good to get someone with not very much experience in the stack that you're working, because then you can teach them best practices rather than have them sort of come in with their own opinion, bad opinions from other places and how things should be done. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think like there was, um, I read it years ago, it was, the, was it the Joel Spolsky book uh, smart and gets things done his his guide yeah. for <clears throat> for recruiting developers now i'm after bringing it up but consequently i can't remember much of it um but basically the whole point was like uh, like i would look for a developer if i was hiring an ios developer i would take anyone you know i can i can buy him a book i can buy him a video course i can tell him to sit down there for two weeks and do this i can tell him to look through the code and i can be there to to help him out or to answer questions that they might have about those particular those particular type of things you kind of get a feel very quickly if someone is an able developer and i think this is what google and the likes try to do with their ridiculous um you know how many mountains would it take to hail an uber or whatever those kind of strange questions Mm -hmm. that they ask in interviews um they're obviously trying to find a proxy for what is a good developer regardless of framework regardless of the stack regardless of language regardless of any of these things where is the this person with the the abstract problem uh, abstract problem solving skills and the computational thought and you know and that that's why you get all these crazy things happening in interviews because people don't necessarily know or people don't necessarily want um developers that know the spec inside out or know a language inside out but then can't actually do anything in it. Like, I mean, we all know people who can quote chapter and verse of this, the language specification, but ask them to actually do anything in it. And, you know, they, they just read it and they were like, ah, sure, this is how I learned it, isn't it? And, you know, <laughs> they, they know everything about the, the under the data types. They know everything about this. But then you're like, do you know, um, what was the one on Reddit recently? Oh, reverse a binary tree for me. And then they, you know, that's that's the end of it. Like, you know. I, I So the iOS developer I recruited, like, yeah, I actually didn't have any iOS experience. So um, I totally agree with your, your point there. Um, I suppose it, it's... So if we've kind of dealt with the first issue that, like, specificity is not a good thing to do when recruiting programmers that there are like other things that are far more valuable to have in your team than x years experience with the language that 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 um you're using or, or even worse the framework you're using um what do we think then are the qual- some of the qualities that that make a good programmer an adaptable sort of person that that is i'm so like joe spolsky's thing as smart and gets things done um do you guys have any thoughts on that i think actual experience like you could have four years of ios experience churning out the same app you know every month yeah. just changing the colors and you know off you go and 
putting a web view in here when someone clicks on a button and, you know, not actually learning anything new apart from the first app that you did or keeping up to date with whatever bits of the, the actual SDK changed at WWDC when the new iOS comes out. And there are people like that, and I'd say that it's probably the majority of... of um jobs are like that you don't have four years experience you've one year's experience four times yeah brings around to a related topic i quite like to talk to people about um when things especially if it's a developer like to talk to them about when things have gone really wrong or like you know what's a really awful bug that you encountered because i think you know a hopefully because you're acting asking a negative that it might make somebody more relaxed and less sort of trying to um just pretend everything is awesome but also like that's that's where you see the metal of a programmer isn't it when you when you know you you have a a bug that is either high impact for the user or that is just really really difficult to track down like that that's the difference between somebody good and somebody great I was going to ask, do you think that um, getting them to do an exam is beneficial? Do you think it shows something like this, even if they, uh, not thinking on the spot, a bug they might have encountered, but an exam might bring up a bug they might have encountered and they might be able to explain how they, you know, approached it. Are you personally a fan of exams or so they give you a problem and you have to work it out either on a whiteboard or you're given a computer? Or like a project. A project or your go away and do it. I what I did when I was recruiting my developers, I just asked them for some source code. Okay. Um, and they gave me something in Java, which is a language I'm not very familiar with. But actually, it really worked for me because um, the person I ended up hiring. Well, first of all, some people that I didn't end up hiring was a lot to do with the source code that they sent me. Um, and it. You know, so some of the stuff I got was in languages I didn't know, but in that a way that didn't matter. And in a way it was a better test because I, what I was doing was having a look at this code and going, you know, what's the variable naming like? Are there comments? Is this readable? Is this all sort of, does this person like using kind of one line tricks or, or sort of compressed if statements, which uh, you guys know I, I'm not a, a fan of. I like kind of verbose stuff, um, you know, yeah, is there some structure to this? Um, and the person I took on had this lovely Java code. It was just, it was clear, it was well commented. There was no, yeah, there was no clever stuff in it. Um, and it was just eminently readable. So I'd kill to find something clever in the code I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think testing it like Bazin, like an exam, I think one of the, the the things that you have to be be careful of when testing these things is like I'm not sure that I could actually name correctly any single iOS method that that exists like you know I rely <clears throat> I rely so heavily on documentation and autocomplete yeah. and everything like um yeah you know like even today i was doing a table view and it was like and i was just like eh, i've done this before and i pulled up a source file that had the code and i copied and pasted it in and <laughs> you know i was like that that's it like so you know and likewise yeah. with things in in auto layout like i mean um let's say i know a lot of things in auto layout but there's strange things that i might have done that you know i i would have to look up every now and then 
um, because I haven't used them and expecting someone to know all that sort of stuff in an interview. I think, you know, it's it's much more beneficial to kind of see someone code in their own environment or to give them something to take home and and come back with as opposed to standing there staring at them. You know, yeah. even if you just left them alone in the room for for an hour or two and told them to use Git to every 30 minutes commit their code so that you could actually see it in progress or something. You know, but um I think I I don't think the the whiteboarding and and exam yeah. exams work too well. Um, I've never had to do that. It frightens me, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think a take-home project is fine. I think anything where, and given that, you know, there is some truth to the cliche that, like, we, as a profession, we can often be quite introverted. And anything that's designed to put people, that might put people under undue pressure, I, I think is just I mean you can do it, but you're 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 clearly gonna miss some really good people as a result who are just gonna freeze. Um certainly yeah, I, I'd be the same, Dave. You you're talking about not knowing any of the API sort of off by heart just to be able to chant it out. Um wasting my brain space, yeah. like do you know I have much more important yeah. things to be floating around up there. <laughs> Whereas I do think, like, my thing of asking about the bugs is, like, just somebody talking me through something that was, like, really difficult and, and kind of, you know, ways they chose to um, try and attack it. That gives me some sense of kind of who they are. And it's also something that, like, it's just something that happened to them. So it doesn't, like, the content of the bug doesn't really matter to me. It's more the... Uh, yeah, you're looking for, the, can, can someone, like, take a systematic approach to something? Essentially, you're yeah. like, okay, well, did they actually, you know, first of all, did they find the bug? Um, but how did they, how did they actually arrive at that? Like, and I mean, I've had a few bugs there that's, you know, they there's so much code and there's so many side effects and there's so many huge systems that are interacting with it that, you know, um, you know, something that takes takes a considerable amount of of time and stuff to find. To be fair to companies on the other side, I mean that whole Fizzbuzz thing, I think was that Jeff Atwood or like it might not have been It was on coding horror anyway it. at some point, yeah. Yeah, that's certainly when a lot of people started talking about it. And the the premise behind it and i've heard other people say something similar is that like mm, sort of 70 to 80 percent of programmers that you would get applying for a programming job couldn't code their way out of a bag yeah i'd agree with that in some ways you know having worked with (laughs) a lot of programmers i think um one thing of benefit that i can offer is i did take a take-home exam in my last interview and Given, given the time restrictions on it, um, where I did quite a lot and actually learned a lot of new stuff from it, um, I wrote a document with it. Besides commenting it, I wrote a document saying, this is how I approached the um, the, the test um, and this is what I would do given more time. So something that I did in three days time, if I was to get, take a, I suppose, two weeks, three weeks at it, these are the steps I would add to it to make it a fuller app. Um, and I think, uh, I believe I got feedback on that and says that really helps, you know, that I could see a vision for a project, even though it was a test, I could see a vision for it, I guess, going forward. I think the thing is, though, with you, Baz, is that throughout your career, you're so talented that you go for one interview, you get accepted <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Whereas like, I just wonder, like, kind of, if you're you're doing kind of five or six interviews and they all have big take-home projects like 
you know, I don't know. Yeah, because like I've I've um, a few friends that are applying for jobs at the moment and they're kind of crossing the country for like first round interviews and it's like, you know, eight hours of driving and, um, you know, for the first round and again and then take home projects and phone interviews and technical interviews. And I mean, you know, I can imagine that if you don't get the first or second job after going through that kind of stuff, that it would be really grating on you at that point, you know, especially if they're not not local, like, you know. And you think, because I know that in, in America, that tends to mean that um, we can't find any developers at the price we're willing to pay for them. Yeah. It's the, it's so annoying, isn't it? It's kind of like this statement of, you know, and it's kind of like it, it's your first class in economics, the supply and demand. Like, you know, we can't find any developers. Offer more money. And that, to me, I think is mixed up in politics, internal politics in an organization and i think it, it it results as well from some business types resenting the fact that program there's a market demand for programmers at the moment um and it, it's for almost sort of philosophical reasons they don't want to pay as opposed to just like monetary yeah i think it's more that um there's there's a you know interchangeable code monkey um you know that you can just be replaced by another another one that comes along and it's not you know there's nothing essentially special about a developer it's just a developer like it's a commodity that is what it's been viewed at from from that point and i think that's fair enough if your core business isn't software but if it is what the hell are you doing like if you're core product to your core business is software and yet you're treating the people who make your software as these sort of interchangeable you know sort of cogs in a machine like that just seems insane to me absolutely insane Baz, you just sent round a link to um, Irish IT salaries. Yeah, this just popped up my head. It was uh, put up on Devil Era on Reddit. Um, best subreddit name. Okay. <laughs> but it, it, it has a breakdown of roles in IT. Um, so CTO, head of IT, IT manager, software developer, etc. all the way down. I suppose it goes across what salary should be between zero to three years, three to five and five plus years. Um, and based on Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Waterford. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people are earning this much. Um, do they feel, do, do the salaries feel high or low to you based on, you know, people you know? Well, or I suppose it actually breaks it down, I guess. It has senior management, I guess. Yeah, I suppose those those figures are probably right. But then I guess it goes down to web and mobile. Are these the actual figures that are out there and stuff like this? And are people are people going to be looking at this kind of going, I'm not earning this amount. I'm getting screwed over. Because um, there's stuff in here at the very start for pensions should be between 6 to 10% employee contribution. And whatever, you know, like I know places don't offer pensions like that. Mm. And healthcare bonuses, annual leave, uh, life assurance. These are the things that are introduced at the very start. A lot of companies don't pay these things for a lot of developers, you know. So I think in Ireland you can get developers sometimes quite easy. It's tough to, I don't know, but it's tough to kind of offer these things as well, you know. I mean, I don't know how someone can run a company and offer these, especially like startups and stuff like that. But it's interesting to look at. As um, if you need to find the developers with low self-esteem. 
That's that's yeah. that's all the thing. I wonder would anyone use this inside and it going forward as a recruitment if someone came to you and said we're offering you just this job and then just put out this form and kind of go, oh no, uh, I want this amount because that's what the average is in Ireland. Uh, from what I know from from friends, um, this isn't too off the wall. Okay. Now, uh, in, including Limerick, like I mean, I'm looking for like an SQL developer database administrator or whatever and in limerick with five years experience 50 to 65 grand that's that's what i'm hearing um, okay. okay and a few of the others there was um is it a dot net or a java where is it um java developer and it's it's do you know it, it's pretty much the same and the thing is it's spot on then, yeah? Close enough, yeah. And the, the thing is that um, now these people would have like five plus. That's a big that's a big uh, difference between, you know, zero to three, three to five, five plus. Yeah, um, it is, isn't it? You know, they're, the, most of these people are out of college around the same length of time that we would be. So, I mean, what is that? I love the i-pad application developer. Um, <laughs> Is there any more money for that? <laughs> yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's... Uh, no, it's less. That's 58 to 72 grand. I, I'm just looking at the starting salaries. Yeah. <laughs> an iOS developer starts at 25, oh. but an iPad developer starts at 22. <laughs> what does an Android developer start at? Yeah, minus something. Yeah, I, oh. it's, it's after the... after. <laughs> After the five, same. it's the five Android plus years that same. I'm looking at at this stage, um, oh, because okay. that's that's where most of m- most of the people I know would be at, um, and the the tech writers' salaries seem to be about the same, or to be about right. The programming salaries seem to be about right. Do you know, there's always outliers, um, but I I think on on average, they're they're close enough. So speaking of salary, and <clears throat> this might segue us on nicely into something, Dave, I think you want to talk about. That whole topic of salary and salary ne- negotiation. Um, and Patrick McKenzie, the guy who's Patio11 on Twitter, I, I think he, he has some quite strong feelings about this um, and how nerds are really bad at salary negotiation. And he sort of believes passionately that they should be better at it. Yeah, it's it's a thing you hear you hear a lot, and it's it's um, you know it's 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 kind of I think the focus at the moment is that women don't negotiate their salary, but I think it's it's much wider than that, you know, um, and I think that just standard negotiating is it's a good skill to have. I think at this stage, if especially if you're in demand at the moment, like we saw those those salaries there, they're pretty good, but there is room for um there is room for negotiation but it always does help if you're coming from uh you know if you're changing jobs and coming from something that's close enough or is even higher in some cases you know to to get stuff out of them so i think what a lot of people lack is leverage or thinking that they can use something as leverage like a previous job or experience or anything to to raise it up a lot of people think uh, it's it's a very irish thing as well like i mean haggling doesn't happen bargaining doesn't happen like too much in any in any significant um way in our daily lives and you just see a price and a sticker and you you pay it like and i think it's kind of the approach we take to to taking salaries and jobs and stuff as well just in, in general not even just tech people or nerds like 
you, you don't want to offend anyone yeah. in case they don't offer you the job. That's it. And then you don't want to talk to your yeah. friends about it for advice in case they know how much you earned, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's it. I, I sometimes feel, you know, maybe that's part of the recruiting recruiter's job then as well to ask you what do you think and then if you want to go back and negotiate they do that for you then as well i guess it's beneficial for recruiters as well right um um in my experience no right okay because you're getting 10 to 15 percent or whatever but actually what you want is you want to get the 10 to 15 percent okay um so they don't want to offend anyone either (laughs) you you kind of just want to get everybody over the line um so like you know if they want five thousand more that doesn't really make a huge amount of difference to your fee it makes a small difference but um it's more about getting it over the line i i think it's a fascinating uh topic i think yeah probably the irish mentality and then the nerd mentality on top of that um is yes certainly not working and i i certainly have seen um programmer friends of mine who i felt got really sort of accepted jobs at way below market rates just because the employer was quite aggressive with the salary negotiation and they kind of caved immediately yeah Dave, hmm. did you want to talk about um the patrick mckenzie thing is it starfighter starfighters is the company and Stockfighter is a okay. particular type of game or application or hacking tool or test or exam or whatever you want to call it that they have developed to recruit developers. So the whole idea is that it's an online hacking game or a hack me game kind of a thing where there is some tasks that has to be overcome and you have to write programs to do it. So it's interactive. This The, the one they have up is called Stockfighter and it's about the stock exchange. So you have to learn about making trades and figuring out loopholes in the algorithms to to get trades done. And there's, you know, and then I think in the end you have to like pull off a heist, um, but all through exploiting the system and figuring things out about trades and different sort of different things. So their, their whole point was that... Um, recruitment is terrible in tech and basically they would set up this game and anyone who did well or was getting well or was you know moving along in the game they if you opt into this they will put you in contact with possible employers so it's free for everyone to use forever but if you if you opt into it they'll they'll call you for a chat and they'll they'll take it from there so it's about finding people I'm not 100% sure if the if when um they hand you over to the um the employer that they're not going to put you through the same stupid interview regardless of having done well on this like it it's some kind of social proof or something but it's still it's still largely untested I think it's it's I think it launched last November or December and I haven't heard too many updates on it since I've played a few of the levels, haven't had the time to get into it, been doing other things and not looking for a job, but um, it was fun. Is this a world, worldwide thing or just the States? I'd assume it's worldwide, but... Um, More leverage over there, maybe. Yeah, it depends, I suppose, on who they're who they're working with, you know? Yeah. Because um, I think they, they said there were single... The last update on their website said they were dealing with single-digit something i think or was it only single digit days since they'd launched so they haven't updated in, in a in a little while oh happy stuff 
You knew this was coming, Thomas. I forgot. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh! If you don't have that, Go on. it's fine. No, I do. I have to have something. Feel left out. I've got something. Uh, can I go first? Yeah. No. <laughs> the thing that is making me happy this week is Silicon Valley. Yeah. But just in general over the past 10 weeks, I have been so enjoying it. It's been really hitting its stride. And I think we are so lucky. I think there are very few professions where there are good comedies written about them that are accurate to the profession. Um. And we've all cringed in the past at sort of representations of our craft on, you know, in TV or film that we felt weren't um, accurate. And I think um, the great thing about Silicon Valley is it's not only is it technically accurate, but it's it's sort of plausible and actually has a pretty uh, close relationship to actually stuff that's goes on for for normal programmers and then adding in all this sort of vc hyped silicon valley tech bubble stuff on top of it I, it's great i really really enjoy it really really i really think they nailed it this season yeah i definitely think it's the best season <clears throat> but what wasn't that there was a really good article on it recently about the writers and stuff and i think the writers had talked about working on another show where the guys would come up to them and they'd have 10 storylines and one out of the 10 storylines would be like superb way better than the rest of them and they'd always be like oh where did you come up with this one and it was like well this one actually happened in real life it's too bizarre (laughs) um you couldn't make this kind of stuff up and i think in the article a lot of the stories you said it's plausible it's plausible because it probably did happen at some point to someone (laughs) in the industry we'll we'll put that we'll put that link in the show notes i think my favorite one is the writers going around (laughs) silicon valley before they write the new series i think it might have been the head of google ventures or somebody getting really annoyed with them and then taking (laughs) half an hour to leave the room because he had rollerblades on (laughs) (laughs) oh it's a good sign of an industry that can sort of, I think it's been relatively well received as well. And I think it's a good sign of an industry that can take um, some humour thrown at it. Yeah, and I think it's worth, um, just in case anyone, uh, there's someone left on the planet that doesn't know, it's Mike Judge and he made uh, Office Space as well, which was another, uh, an early attempt um, at mm-hmm. that, that kind of, that industry. He worked for a tech startup after leaving college. Apparently, that was his big inspiration for it, because he's a physicist. Yeah, I didn't get that whole physicist thing from uh, King of the Hill, I'll be honest. <laughs> it was a beast of butthead. He used it more subtly there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so who's next? Um, Can't believe you guys haven't got something to talk about, you so well, I have something to talk about, but I just want Bass to go first. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you don't have anything bad, no, do you? No, I do. So, uh, it's easy. Lots of happy stuff in my life. Don't you have anything happy in your life, Bad? Fuck yourself. God, it must suck to be you. Jeez. Oh, friends like you who could be happy. <laughs> um, I guess, <clears throat> I suppose w- w- one very brief thing that just happened there that made me quite happy was um, I put through my first order on Fiverr.com. Um, if you don't know what Fiverr.com is, it's a website where someone will offer their services, um, usually design 
something like this or modeling like 3d modeling you know lots of different things and they'll do it for a fiver but they also offer i guess a more expensive um option as well but i got my first product back from um a guy there and um it was fantastic it was uh above and beyond what i expected so i definitely recommend fiverr.com if you're looking for maybe proof of concept designs or stuff like this um definitely go to them so that was just popped up there i'm very happy with them um and hopefully i can share more on that in the future um other thing that's made me happy this week was a game that came out this week and it's called zero time dilemma um it's the third in a tree part it's not a trilogy because this is in the middle i guess of the three part game. I guess it's a trilogy with this. So they've already done the one to start, uh, the one at the end, and then this is somewhere in the middle of the timeline. The game, um, the, the games, uh, the first one is 999. The third, uh, the second one, sorry, is uh, Virtue's Last Reward. They're off the wall insane. So I guess the idea is usually that it's a bunch of people knocked up and they have to escape certain rooms and co- create uh, complete tasks. But a lot of time, most of the characters die. They all die constantly over and over again. So you play through the story over and over again. Um, but you're always making different decisions as you make work your way through the game. And eventually you kind of, through crazy scenarios, you figure out a way of playing the game that everyone survives. Um, the way they do it is usually very, very off the wall. You never really see it coming. But uh, I guess the games have never cleared up a lot of issues. So this game, I'm really enjoying it at the moment, but I'm definitely nowhere near kind of the aha moment, I guess, yet. But I know the aha moments are going to come in this game. And it's going to clear up, you know, maybe seven or eight years of these stories. Uh, Having a lot of fun playing that. So that's Zero Time Dilemma. Definitely check it out. If you haven't checked out the other games, check them out as well. You can get them really, really cheap. So that's me. (laughs) Yeah, I got that no, just, just couldn't. Just, just so, shanking your chin. Yeah, well, um, one thing that's really making me happy is the fact that it's really sunny out and it's, like, warm again and it, it actually feels like summer. Um, was it sunny all weekend at Limerick? No, just today, really. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But it was, it was really nice. I, like, went to the park and, like, sat on a bench um, next to some lads drinking cans, but that's a different. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and an old guy who had taken up an entire bench with and was lying down with his coat over his face, listening to a GA match of some kind. Um, it's a standard fare. So that was that's really nice to see that there might actually be some kind of a summer. And second thing that's making me happy is um, or I suppose if we're going for something techy, um, Safari books online have um, a new learning paths feature and basically it is video tutorials on specific skills but it has the entire path from beginner to expert or advanced mapped out in a series of courses so for example like i just um there's a learning path here in front of me designing hardware with autodesk 123d inventor and autocad 3d and you know if i go into that then i actually get to see that it's um kind of an amalgamation of a few different courses it's learning autodesk um course then learning autodesk inventor with a different instructor and it's kind of put together courses that complement each other and um 
they they seem to be put together by people who actually understand the material. It's not just someone doing a kind of a keyword analysis and saying, ah, oh, beginning C and advanced C, that'll do. You know, um, they're actually, <laughs> they seem to be really well put together. And Safari Books as well, just in general, is an absolute joy. So I think that's it for me this week. That's kind of where I've where I've been uh, where I've been spending my time 